Mighty God, thank you for your word that we've just heard read, and now we pray that we would be open and receptive to your word being preached. We know that whenever your people gather together, you do amazing things that we are not in charge of. We do the work of coming and the work of showing up and bringing kids and being present, but you do the mightiest work of all, where you meet us, where you open wide the door to our understanding of Christ, to his kingdom becoming something real that we understand, not just with our heads, but with our hearts. And you teach us through your word how to step into that kingdom and make it a way of life, something real that we interact with every single day. So would you increasingly make your kingdom clear to us during this time? Would you be doing that work as our kids learn in their Sunday school classes, as our babies are loved in the nursery? Thank you, God. For this time together, we are counting on you to do mighty things in and through these moments. Would you do so to your glory, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Thanks for being here on a holiday weekend. It's great to see all of you. I want to begin by thinking about this word, uh, intervention. Apparently there's a TV show called Intervention. I haven't seen it. But I want to just give a really simple definition of intervention and think about what that might mean for us as it relates to the text Ryan just read for us. An intervention is just when somebody steps in and helps you. You need help. You need someone to create a way for you. The power to change your situation isn't there. And so an outside force, an outside agent steps in and changes something. An intervention is when someone steps in and makes a change. In parenting, interventions are constant. (laughs) Like, parenting is just a form of continually being intervened on, in a way. There was a time not too long ago uh, when my family and I had just moved to our new neighborhood. It's not new anymore. We've been there almost two years. But it was the winter. We were uh, about to welcome our baby, Amelia, into the world. And uh, it was cold, and my wife had a job to do. Uh, We were hoping to register at this preschool in our neighborhood. And those of you that are parents probably know where this is going. Uh, registering for preschool is not the same thing as buying something at Costco. It can be quite involved. So we start to hear about this preschool. We want to be there. This is where we want our kids to be. And of course, what everybody is saying is, well, get to registration early. And internally, you just groan, right? You're like, okay, what does that mean? Like, that means there's going to be a bunch of people there. Like, what? So Jill, eight and a half months pregnant, goes from our house over to what is now our preschool. Uh, And this is not the typical Pacific Northwest, typical Pacific Northwest winter. If you remember, this was like, you know, winter 2017. It got cold. Like there was some ice, like people were kind of afraid to drive. So of course, eight and a half month pregnant wife, like, yes, let's send you out. Like, let's send you on a little walk. That's great. Uh, It was treacherous, but my wife was determined because she felt like this school was where we needed to belong. And I'll tell you why I wasn't the one doing this in just a minute. So she goes over there early in the morning. We think early enough that she's probably going to be first in line. Oh, no, no, no. There were people there well before her with their sleeping bags, which tells you something. They were waiting there, but she got in line. She got in. She goes up to the registration table. And this is why I wasn't there. Because when the moment came for us to register our kids for school, the plan that we had in our minds had to be changed. We were able to register our middle kiddo, Hadley, sign her up, no problems. But when it came to Will, the class that we wanted to put him in was already full. So, like, that's the worst feeling in the world, right? When you've waited in line for something and then someone says, sorry, it's already full. You just kind of go like, then what did I, what, what was I doing here? Like, come on. So, the reason Jill went and I didn't go 
is because Jill is able to do this wonderful thing called pivot. And in the moment when she found out that the class we hoped our son Will could sign up for was full, in my brain, if I'm in that moment, I'm going, well, time to go home. Nothing I can do. Maybe I would have called Jill. Maybe I would have had the thought, like, oh, I should call her before I walk away from this. But no, Jill, but Jill decided to ask a question about the next level up of school for him. Okay, the preschool class is full. Tell me about this kindergarten class. Is that full? Oh, no, it's not full. Oh, really? Well, let's sign him up for that. So, as the plan unfolded, there would have been a very stupid-looking dad standing there going, I don't know what to do. But Jill was able to seize that moment. And she was able to kind of take it and make it into a transformative thing that I and others probably never could have. And the phrase I want us to think about as we get started now talking about our text, Ryan read for us. It's in verse 4, and it's this kind of subtle intervention, and it says, but God. Can you guys say that with me? But God. Those two words are going to come up a bunch today. But God had a plan for the people of God. And we're going to talk about what that looks like, but the way I'm connecting this to the story about my wife is, we had a plan, we went in there, this was all good, but Jill was able to do something amazing in that moment. But God is what I've been saying to myself all week long as I've been studying this text, as I've been trying to think about what does this actually mean in my life? And what it means for me is, is I could have a trajectory, I could have something I'm going after, but God has something else in mind. I could be discouraged I could face a real tough season in work or in marriage or as a parent, but God knows the way through that. But God knows the kind of resources that I need, and he perfectly provides those for you and for me. And we all need to remember the but God phrase because it is so easy to get trapped in the thinking that I got to figure this out. I got to come up with my way through this. And what the but God allows us to do is say, no, 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 that's on God. God is going to make a way through this. It doesn't give us permission to be lazy. It gives us the opportunity to be dependent upon him. So that's one of the main messages of the book of Ephesians, is there's this way of life, the trajectory that humanity was heading on, but God intervened through the resurrection. But God made a way, made a change. All of the major translations actually actually put it the same way, but God in verse 4. So we're going to look, about, look at what that means. We're going to talk about how that comes to us through three different headings, which are in your bulletin. Uh, freedom through death, freedom in God's power, and freedom for a new path. You can find those three headings there, death and power and a new path. And if you want to just join me in saying, but God, every time I say it, but God, or you want to put your hands out like this, as I've been doing throughout the week, but God, has another plan, has another direction. I think that'll make it that much richer in our lives. So let's start with the first movement. There'll be a slide up behind me uh, of some gravestones because this is where we're going to talk about everyone's favorite subject, death. And I want to begin this discussion by looking at verses 1 through 3. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. And as we talked about last week, the Apostle Paul's writing this letter. We're pretty confident of that. We don't think it was necessarily written to a specific church as much as it was written to a wide gathering of churches. It could have been maybe passed around, maybe in a region like Ephesus, maybe in other parts of the New Testament church. But we know he's writing principles that are always applicable for the people of God. So listen now to verses 1 through 3. He's just had this discourse on the origin of the church. He's prayed for the Ephesians. And then he writes this. You were dead... 
through the trespasses and sins in which he once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them and the passions of our flesh, following the desires of the flesh and senses. And we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. Okay, there's a lot in there, and I want to do a really broad, oversimplified take on that. Verses 1 and 2, ugh, it's a bummer. That's all the stuff that's always hard to hear, no matter how long you've been following Jesus Christ, or for people outside the church, it's really hard to hear, because verses 1 and 2 sound like the usual sort of condemnation, Bible-thumping, like, we don't like sinners, sinners need to get out of here. And if it just ended at verse 2, we wouldn't have a lot of hope. So verse 1 and 2 is kind of, ugh, like, oh, it's hard to hear this, even though I know this is true. Verse 3, though, democratizes that feeling. Verse 3 says, everybody is caught up in this mess. Everybody faces these problems. Sometimes the worst thing that sin does to you and to me is to convince us that we're the only person on earth struggling with that problem. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes sin just does that to us, where we go, well, gosh, I must be the only person in the universe that mismanages my checkbook, right? Like, that's just me. I'm so bad at this, therefore. Sin always wants to convince us of that. The enemy always wants us to believe that we are isolated in our sins because then we're that much more vulnerable. Verse 3 refutes that. Verse 3 says, no, 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 we are all hosed when it comes to things like behavior or finances or whatever you want to choose. Now, somebody might be thinking, okay, yes, I've heard this. I understand. I'm dead. I, sins, transgressions, fine. I actually think I'm a pretty good person and I'm working on the stuff in my life that feels like sin to me. So help me out here. Like, what, What's Paul trying to say? I think what he's trying to say is that even if we don't agree with the statement that we are broken, that we are dying, that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, that we can find stuff in our lives that feels dead. We can find stuff in our lives that feels dead. Flannery O'Connor wrote a novel called The Violent Bear It Away, and the main character is a 14-year-old boy named Francis Marion Tarwater. Anybody read this book? I had to read Flannery O'Connor in school, but I haven't read this one specifically. Tarwater is this broken kid, 14 years old. He's an anti-hero, if you will. His journey is a pretty dark one of doubt and despair and violence. And along the way, he has these wonderful moments where he's kind of feeling like he has faith. He has faith in Jesus Christ. If you remember Flannery O'Connor was Catholic, so all of her writing was around faith and what it means to follow God. And Tarwater really struggles with this. And there's a quote that I want to share. It's a bit long, but I think it helps illustrate this point that every one of us faces things in our lives which just feel dead. I'm going to ask Ian to put this up on the screen and I'll read it for us. In the darkest, most private part of his soul, I love this phrase, hanging upside down like a sleeping bat, was the certain undeniable knowledge that he was not hungry for the bread of life, that he didn't actually have faith in Jesus. Had the bush flamed for Moses, the sun stood still for Joshua, the lions turned aside before Daniel only to prophesy the bread of life, only to point toward Jesus. He felt a terrible disappointment in that conclusion, a dread that it was true. He tried when possible to pass over these thoughts, to keep his vision located on an even level, to see no more than what was in front of his face, and to let his eyes stop at the surface of that. 
It was as if he were afraid that if he let his eyes rest for an instant longer than was needed to place something, a spade, a hoe, the mule's hindquarters before his plow, the red furrow under him, that the thing would suddenly stand before him, strange and terrifying, demanding that he name it and name it justly and be judged for the name he gave it. He did all he could to avoid this threatened intimacy of creation. What's he saying? He's naming, I think, a reality that every one of us faces that verses 1 through 3 point toward. While we might insist that we're good, we got it covered, we're, we're holding it all together, we may not be perfect, but we got it. There are parts of our lives that always feel dead. And that's the way that sin keeps playing out in our lives over and over again. It's not just our behaviors, it's not just the things that we say and don't say, it is the parts of us that we can't fix by ourselves. And for Tarwater, the scary thing about what he writes us here is he feels like his beliefs are hollow. He feels like, man, I say that I believe this stuff, but I don't even know if I do or not. And I'll just say, that's been me too. And this is what I do, right? Like my discipleship, the faith that I pray that Jesus keeps growing in me, there are times of doubt and struggle and wrestling. And I would imagine I'm not alone in the room in that. In the text we're studying today, Paul is telling his audience, look, you have dead places. Remember that image of the sleeping bat hanging upside down? There are places in your life that are just hanging there that you have not brought to Jesus Christ, that you are convinced if you just keep busy, you won't have to look at them. So what are those places for you and for me? Does your work feel dead right now? We all go through seasons in our work where we're discouraged or we don't feel like we're making progress. We don't know what the next thing is. If we're a teacher, our students aren't listening to us. If you work in a hospital, this is like every day if you work in a hospital. Your patients are crazy. They're trying to do stuff all the time. Your work just feels dead. You're tired. Sometimes marriage can feel this way. Sometimes our friendships can feel this way. They're just perfunctory and kind of rote and we're just sort of being nice neighborhoods can feel this way. My family and I moved to a neighborhood a couple of years ago and nobody said hi to anybody. Nobody talked, not even at the mailbox, right? Like the mailbox is the most benign place in the world to try to talk to someone. People wouldn't talk. It felt dead. Now here's the point that I'm trying to make. Upon reflection, we can all name parts of our lives that feel dead. Upon reflection, if we stop long enough to think about it, we can name parts of our lives that feel dead. And that means we can relate to what Paul is writing about in verses 1 through 3. And we all just want to skip it. We all just want to keep moving, keep busy, keep our head up, keep changing diapers, keep tilling the soil, keep doing this, keep doing that, hoping that hanging sleeping bat will go away, but it's not gonna. When I became a follower of Jesus, part of what helped me get there, get to that place where I could really embrace Jesus Christ, was realizing that I could try to turn good things into the things that I got my identity from. And those good things actually became dead things. Like being a good student, making uh, athletic achievements, relational successes. If I keep doing these things, if I keep moving the ball forward, I will be okay. No, I won't. No, you won't. And I know this is kind of a dour way to begin our time together, but I think it begs us to reflect. I'm asking us to reflect on what are those dead places. Because it's only in naming dead places that we can find the places where God is pouring his life out into our life. Are you experiencing a sense of death in your household? An absence of something that you long for? Is your work just not doing it for you right now? If so, that's okay. We all go through this. 
I would ask, have you asked someone into that? Have you shared? Have you invited someone to say, you know what? I don't really like my job right now. It's actually quite freeing to be able to say that when you're in those moments. I don't like being a parent right now. Being married is really hard right now. Just to admit that is freeing. And to admit that in safety, to admit that with you know, people that you, you should be doing that with, that's one of my encouragements. My other encouragement is to ask Jesus, what's going on with this? Why do I feel dead? Why have I been through this season where I've been sick a lot? Why have I been through a season of unemployment? What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? And I mention all of that because for us to actually aim properly at the next two things we're going to talk about this morning, we do need to take that time to think about those dead places, those places that we just would rather not deal with and stay busy and not think about. And I believe that we can do this through Christ. We begin with death. We talk about the stuff in your life and mine that needs to die. But this is where it starts to get really good is when we start to talk about power. So we can put up the next slide of the gas station handle. Right? This is the kind of power we all rely on. If you drive a Prius, just picture an electric outlet. Just, you know, go that way. Now, let's talk about where this power comes from. Read, uh, I invite you to read verses 4 through 7 with me. You can listen, and I'll read it for us. And this is that great phrase. You want to say it with me right at the top. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Okay, that can be a little hard to follow. Trust me, I've been studying this all week. And here's how I want us to kind of enter into this. Think about the distractions in your life. Right? Like, it's beyond cliche to say that we live in an age of distraction. To look at your phone, to look at whatever's in front of you, the advertisements we constantly see, it is really hard to sort of push through all the distractions we have and sit and focus on things that will actually bring us life. And I think that's one of the encouragements the Apostle Paul is giving to us in the text. He's telling us there are many things you could look at, but the thing that God wants us to look at, he says it in verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he, God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He will show the immeasurable riches of his grace to us. You know what that means? That means God is showing stuff to us all the time. He is continually showing us his goodness and his grace. And he knows how to show it to us in ways that make sense to us. So sometimes I'll come home from work, I'll walk into my house, and one of my kids will come up and show me something they made at school that day, right? And it's, you know, macaroni glued onto construction paper, or it's a drawing they just made, right? And so, you know, they're kind of holding it up, they want to get my attention. And oftentimes, because I'm tired and I'm not always a great parent, I'll just say, yeah, let me look at that in a minute. I want to get, get a glass of water. Okay, just a sec. Okay, yeah, I want to, you know, change into my sweatpants. Okay, just, just a sec, right? This is, in a way, what we're doing when, we, <laughs> when God is trying to show us something. Hey, look at this. Look at what I have for you. It's my grace. It's my mercy. It is the things that will bring you life when you look at them. And I'm over here on my phone. Or I'm over here distracted by something. Or I'm over here trying to stay busy. That's all of us, you guys. I'm not trying to single any one of us out. And I will fully admit, it is really hard for us to focus on the things that bring us life. 
It's so much easier to distract ourselves. It's so much easier to keep busy, keep working. I have noticed, though, lately, and I felt convicted about this this week as I was studying, that I have taken as little time as I've taken lately, probably within the last couple of months, to sit with God, to be present with God, to focus on his things as I ever have. And I'm just laying that out there for you guys. Like, this has been a struggle for me lately, too. I know the things that will, I can focus on that will bring me life, and instead I'm distracting myself. Instead, I'm staying busy or I'm saying, no, I got to go do this first or I got to go do that first. That is not the way to live into this but God way of life. But God doesn't want me to keep distracting myself. But God desires for you and I to focus on things that are actually life-giving. And we know what those things are. It's the scriptures. It's being in fellowship with one another. It's surrounding ourselves with the things that will actually draw our attention to Jesus and not just to ourselves. So one of the ways that I've tried to get at this, if you want just a real practical thing, an amazing thing that God does in my life, is when I sit down and I actually take the time to write something out in my journal, because journaling helps me focus, then I can really focus on something that's life-giving. So for example, in the text we just read, his immeasurable riches. What does that mean? What does that mean? If I sit with that long enough, and I'm just like letting this sink into me, if I sit with a phrase from the scriptures and I can just write for a little bit and go, okay, immeasurable riches, wow, like that's beyond my comprehension. That's something bigger than I can even fathom. But I let myself think about that. I let, my go, I let myself go in that direction and not in the direction of what do I need to get at the grocery store or what are my kids doing or what about this or what about that. If I can devote my attention to that, that is life-giving for me. That means that when I'm tempted by things like, well, if I only made more money, there's less power behind that temptation if I know the immeasurable riches of God's goodness. If I'm tempted to compare myself to my colleagues at work, like, man, how are we getting stack ranked? Who's going to get the promotion? Who's going to get the raise? No. Because if I know the immeasurable riches are there for me and they're given by God, then other forms of riches are so not appealing. They're so much less appealing. They're still tempting, of course, but they're not as appealing. They're not, I'm not tugged toward them like I might be. These are the kinds of patterns that God wants us to step into. These are moments when the kingdom, the reality of God's rule and reign, how he wants us to live our lives and our obedience to that, when we see that coming together, when we're able to think about things like the immeasurable riches of his grace, those are steps toward freedom. And there is power in that to say no to the things of this world that are just going to suck our life away and to say yes to the things of God. Those are the things that I can think about that will bring me life. How about you? Running on the treadmill, feeling like all you're thinking about is work, all you're thinking about is your to-do list, all you're thinking about is when can I get to retirement. That's great. There's nothing wrong with planning and doing that. But you've got to get off the treadmill. How are you going to get off the treadmill this week? How are you going to step off of it? How are you going to take a break? One of the suggestions I would make is last week and this week, we have a sheet of identity statements from the scriptures. I am the beloved of God. I am a child of God. All these other things. And they're short, simple readings. And I've just been trying to read through those devotionally this last week. I would encourage you to do that as well. We'll have those available at the back table on your way out. Grab one of those sheets, read through it, pray through it. One of the ways to just supercharge God's power in your life to experience it in an incredible way is by being in a small group. And if you haven't found a small group to belong to yet, we have uh, some forms at the table. You can fill one out and we will get in touch with you and help you get connected. 
If you have a chaotic home life like I do, find a place to just carve out some space where it's just you. I had a friend when I was in seminary, and he and his family totally downsized their house. They sold their home. They, they moved into this little bitty apartment. They had a couple of kids. It was complete chaos. But he needed this time to focus on the things of God, to, to have God pour God's life into him. And so he created this little space out on his porch. He showed it to me one time. And it was like, you know, this size, right? Like barely like four by ten. And they had like storage boxes stacked up over here. And they had like a bike right here. And then my buddy could kind of slide in like right here with his little chair. And he could, you know, put his coffee cup like on the pedal of the bike or something and sit there. And that little corner, that little niche was where he was able to meet God. What could that look like for you? Just carving out that space. In an era of distractions, our God, but God gives us life-giving focus when we look at Jesus, when we think about the things that he wants us to think about. And I invite you to consider what that could look like for you this week. Now, power is one thing, but power is given to pursue something. So now we're going to talk about the final section, a new path. This is where we'll see the picture of a compass. And so just to review, we need Jesus to be our focus because everything else will lead us to death. It'll become an idol. We'll just stay on the treadmill. We'll keep distracting ourselves. It'll tear us up. And God gives us his power to live into a new path. And this is where we start to apply this but God way of thinking. And this new path looks like something amazing. We're going to read verses 8 through 10. And I hate that we're just kind of blowing through this this week because it's just so good and so rich. Verses 8 through 10. You can read this. Read along with me. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, or we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. I want us to focus on that life-changing phrase, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Like, this is one of the key things in Christian history. This is one of the tenets of the Reformation. Luther was all about this. An almost identical phrase happens in verse 4. So if you've been around church, if you've been a part of a church, you have heard all kinds of things about this, right? And it's so important that we are saved by grace through faith. Paul repeats it twice in this section because it is so important. But I want to highlight something for us that the English translation misses. In English, we don't have plural verbs, really. Like, verbs are just kind of the way that you shape shape and shift them is not in and of themselves. You have to give them a pronoun. In the Greek, you can have a plural verb. So this makes me really happy, you guys. If you translate it through the Greek, y'all have been saved by grace through faith. So turn to your neighbor and say, y'all been saved. Y'all been saved. Y'all been saved. It's true. Throw in a little Texas twang in there for some bonus points. This is not the individualistic way of thinking about salvation. Oh, good, I'm playing for the winning team. I got my ticket punched. The rest of you are losers. Instead, the text tells us that salvation is so much more than just me and Jesus. It is always through Jesus. The scriptures are 100% clear on that. Salvation is always through Jesus Christ. But we miss the joy of living into that now if we're not part of a community if we're not experiencing salvation, as we walk through life with other people. 
If you've experienced God's salvation in Jesus Christ, if you're living in God's kingdom right now, if you see it breaking around you, if it's all in your life, then one of the strongest ways for us to be able to interact with that is by being with other people. So good job. You're doing that. You're here this morning. Sir Michael Howard is one of the most well-regarded historians in Great Britain. And he's studied the world wars. He lived during the Cold War era. And now, kind of in the twilight of his career, he's watching Brexit unfold and seeing all these diplomatic things come together. And I read an article where he was kind of commenting on Brexit. And he's tipping his hand here. He said this, The great lesson of my lifetime is that all difficult problems and challenges are best addressed with partners and allies. All difficult problems are best addressed with partners and allies. Now, that's a pragmatic statement, but I think we can take it a little bit deeper. Y'all have been saved. Y'all been saved. We need others to help us work on our, our salvation because the solutions and the challenges that we face are so complex. And for us to think that we have the wisdom and the wherewithal to kind of figure it out on our own is fallacy. There's a group of guys at this church that get together for pub night once a month. We just go and get some beers and talk. And sometimes we talk deeply and sometimes we talk very surfacy. but it's a great time to be together. And guys need both, by the way. We need to be able to kind of talk about the weather and then shift gears and actually talk about our lives. A couple of uh, pub nights ago, a guy was sharing, and I have his permission to share this with you guys. There's a health challenge coming up for his family. Someone in his family is going to have surgery. And he was talking about it with us, and he was being very vulnerable. I mean, the surgery was coming soon. And he said this amazing thing. This was just so encouraging to me and so vulnerable and so transparent. He said, I know right now, because the surgery hasn't happened yet, that I believe that God is going to take care of my family. I believe that. I don't know what I will believe on the other side of that surgery. If it goes bad, if something terrible happens, like I don't know how that will affect my faith. I hope I believe on the other side. But right now, I know that I do believe. I mean, that was such a freeing word for all of us to kind of go like, oh man, yeah, I get it. Like, we hope we will be people of character and people who stick to Jesus on the other side of trials and things that we just, we don't know. How is this going to go? And I loved my friend's vulnerability and just saying like, you know, on the other side of this, like, I could be a wreck. I don't know what my face going to look like. But that so encouraged me. And I think it encouraged the other guys that were there that night to go, yeah, I get what you're saying. This is hard. Have you been able to have conversations like that recently? Have you been able to step into fellowship with others where you're just listening to them and you're going like, oh, you have no idea how helpful the thing you just said is, but that is so helpful for me to hear. When I was in the early throes of parenting, I would go see one of my mentors, an older guy, and I would complain all day long about this, that, or the other, about finances or my job or whatever. And one time, wise older man just looked at me and said, these are hard times. Just to hear him say that was so freeing, so encouraging to me. That is how y'all been saved gets worked out. Is when we hear someone saying to us like, hey, I, I understand, I get it. Or someone who can come sit with us and say, I have no idea what you're going through, but I'm with you. And I'm glad to be able to walk through it with you. I'm facing surgery, but God has united me to others who will pray for me. My kids are a mess, but God has given me the wisdom and counsel of other parents, and they're telling me this too shall pass. When we look around our city and we see kids and schools and families who are hurting, we can be discouraged, we can be pessimistic, but God 
calls us to be a blessing. He calls us to enter in. And if you're looking to do something amazing on August 26th, we will not worship in this building. We will go worship God by serving at a Title I school here in Kirkland and caring for those families and those kids. And that is one of those ways that y'all been saved is going to get worked out together. And I hope you'll be a part of it. The passage ends with this incredible description, which is meant for the church. This is the section of the letter talking about life together in the church. You are God's workmanship. Some other translations say you are God's masterpiece. You are God's beautiful, incredible work of art. So how do we live into that? I want to give us just a few practical encouragements as we wrap up. Start by naming those places that feel dead to you. Remember that image from the O'Connor quote of the sleeping bat just kind of hanging there? Can you name that? The thing you're trying to convince yourself isn't there or that you haven't dealt with. Ask Jesus, what do you want me to do with this? I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to fix it. Grab one of those identity hands out, handouts that we'll have at the back table. You can also grab it off of our Facebook page. And just join me in reading through that, praying through that, reflecting on those statements throughout the weeks ahead. You can get into a small group. I mentioned that earlier. Our prayer team isn't here this week, but in the weeks to come, come forward. Have someone pray with you. Share with someone these places of death and discouragement in your life and have someone join you in holding out to God. Finally, as uh, Bree comes up, as we get ready to join our hearts together and worship again, you'll have the opportunity after, uh, as the next song begins to respond by writing something down. Um, at the back of the sanctuary, we'll have a table set up that has those handouts on it of the biblical identity statements. Love for you to grab that. And then we'll also have some post-it notes back there, just plain old yellow post-it notes and some markers. And what I want to invite all of us to do is to simply write this phrase on a post-it note. But God, can you say that with me? But God, where could this go to remind you, remind me throughout the week I see things going one way, but God sees it another way. But God sees so much more potential for me in my work, in my parenting, with my children. When I'm discouraged, but God has all the encouragement for me that I need. Go back to the table. You can do this during the last two songs. You can do it after the benediction, however you like. Write this out. Maybe write one out for somebody you love. And then put it somewhere where you're going to see it. Put it in your car. Stick it to your dashboard. Stick it to the back of your phone or your wallet. Stick it to your bathroom mirror or next to your screen at work. This is how we can respond to the goodness and mercy of our God and reminding ourselves of his goodness as we go from this place into the world that he loves, that he died to save. Would you join me in prayer? Mighty God, thank you. Thank you that as we gather our hearts together once again in singing and in worship, We know that your scriptures uh, take time to sink in, so we ask that you would afford us that time now to really hear from you. We pray that the dead places in our life, we would hold them out to you. We pray that the community our hearts long for, that we would take those brave steps and connect with a friend or connect with a small group and be intentional about that. We pray that as a church, we would not be fearful. We would not be fearful of the things that challenge us. Whether it's our role in our community, figuring out the mission you've called us to, inviting more people in our future. We could worry all day long about that, but God, you 
have a different plan for us, and it is a plan of peace and of joy and of the fruits of the Spirit. So God, each in our own ways, allow us to step into your future, trusting you and filled with your grace. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.